Well, listen, folks, we're going to get into the words. We're going to take time to read God's word because worship is important. Uh, fellowship is important. Prayer is really important. Uh, but God's word is incredibly important as well. It's the thing that anchors us in truth. And, and so let's get into it. For those of you that are, are visiting, we've been journeying through the chronology of the Bible from start to finish. So we are a year and eight months into it. And we are in the Minor Prophets, and I'm not going to revisit the jokes, I think I've done them, overdone them, some might say. But uh, we're going to look at another really short book this morning. We're looking to demonstrate that, that God is the same yesterday, day, and yesterday, today, and forever. Now, of course, that word is spoken of Jesus, but Jesus and, and the Father are one, so they are the same. That, that God's heart hasn't changed in the millennia that, that uh, since he created the earth, that God's longing has always been that we would be in relationship with him. We would know him. We would walk with him. We would trust him implicitly. Who do you trust implicitly in your life? Who do you trust un, in an unwavering way? Anyone? I hope there's some people that you really trust. But who can you trust without a shadow of a doubt? The living God. And that's God's longing for us to come to that place where we really trust his voice. Well, we hear his voice, we know his voice, and we trust his voice. So God hasn't changed, and, uh, but people are people. People haven't changed either. Everything we've visited over the past year and a half shows us that the same things that we see today, the same things were happening hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago. People saying, I see you, God. I hear you, God, but actually I'm gonna go this way because it's easier, it's more comfortable, it suits me better. I get less stick from my friends and neighbors. And God's wanting generation after generation to put a hand out and beckon people and so here we are. Before we get to that though, question. This is a really deep question. Are you ready for a deep question? Take a deep breath. There we go. A deep question. What are the two most perfect ingredients in the world? I'm looking at my American brother and sister. I had written down as my first example, peanut butter and jelly. I must have known you were coming. Is that something that you, you would gravitate towards, guys? Yeah. Anyone else? No. But listen, oh, thank you, George. Listen, it's a cultural thing, isn't it? I think in Australia, they would, they would do something differently. And in, as a Scot, I'm not going to stand here and judge anyone for what they eat. Um, but the perfect combinations, peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and jam, as we might say. What else? Perfect combinations. We can think about ingredients first, then we can branch out from there. Anything? Peanut butter in porridge. Mary. 
I'm seeing a whole new light to you here. My goodness, you're a trailblazer. Mary lives life on the edge, you can tell. Still turning mushrooms, who shouted that out? One of our, one of our visitors, anybody else? There we go, there we go, cultural. But let's just revisit that, still turning mushrooms. You're getting emotional at the back there, just thinking about it, I can see. My goodness, anybody else? Who likes Stilton? Who likes mushrooms? There is prayer at the end of service, uh, it'll be here. So if you wanna come forward, you're most welcome. Okay, one more. Bacon and eggs, there we go. Strawberries and cream, don't whisper that, my hearing's not gone that bad yet. Strawberries and cream. Okay, let me give you a few more. I had it yesterday. I wrote this on Friday and I had it yesterday. I didn't know I was going to have it yesterday. God is good. Amen? All the time. So he, he, he gifted me this. Sticky toffee pudding and vanilla ice cream. I know. And it was a good one. It was a good one. Cup of tea and some nice chocolate. Yeah? Tea and toast. There, yeah, there's something about tea and toast. I remember when, when Ellen gave birth to Ailey and to Bethany, the Scottish hospitals would bring, uh, the nurses would bring tea and toast. And, you know, I mean, I, I labored all night with Ailey, you know. I was on my feet the whole night uh, as Ailey was born. And Hel I mean, Helen got to lie down the whole time. Uh, I was on my feet. Uh, I'm saying that because she's not here and I've got my shin pads on just in case she gives me a kick. Uh, no, uh, uh, tea and toast in moments. There's just something about tea and toast. My last one I would say was uh, chocolate and chocolate, because you can never have enough chocolate. What about in God's economy? What is the perfect combination, the perfect uh, two uh, dynamics? I would propose, word and the spirit are good. They're good, I didn't have that, but they're good. Probably better than what I've got, so. <laughs> Grace and truth, amen. Didn't have that either, well done. Uh, that's good, that's good. These are all good, these are all good. Righteousness and mercy, brilliant. Do you know, there are so many people in this room. I love this because this is evidence. You maybe don't realize it, but it's evidence of the Holy Spirit working through us this morning. Sometimes we think it has to be, uh, oh, there's gonna be flames of fire and people are gonna start dancing. We, we Barbara that is in her 90s, that's never danced. The Spirit got hold of her and she started dancing. That's sometimes what we kind of caricature the Spirit as. But I want to propose that this is the spirit at work, bringing these dynamics to the floor. Thank you, folks. Let me share what I put down. What I'm going to frame this morning on it. It's the simple pairing of love and truth. Love and truth. I was a primary teacher, so mine's are much more basic than yours. <laughs> love and truth. Sharing with a, with a brother on a, on a Thursday morning that I'm watching great videos about this. It's a Scottish guy who does sort of 10 minute videos uh, and it's called uh, Trenches or something. And he says that, that in our current culture, there's a real battle between love and truth and people are, are polarizing themselves at either end of that spectrum, thinking that one should be opposed to the other. And he was saying, if you've got loads of love, but no truth, then you're missing something. If you've got all truth, but no love, you're missing something. And how, yes, we say we love the example he gives is that he meets somebody who is convinced that they're a bird. 
And so he says, but the loving thing to do in our culture is just to affirm that person and say, you feel you're a bird, that's fine, be a bird. Then the person climbs up onto a railing of a bridge and goes to jump off to fly. Was it loving to tell that person you are what you think you are? Or was it loving to bring a bit of truth in and say, brother, friend, you're not a bird. You're incredible. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You have got the potential to do incredible things in your life, but you're not a bird. Love without truth is, is, is dangerous. But equally, standing and championing and beating the drum for truth without love is not as God would have it. The, the, the perfect combination in God's economy, we've got several perfect combinations, love and truth being one of them. We're in a period of, of God's history where this is going to be seen vividly. We are working through the minor prophets, as I've said. We touched on Nahum last week. We're going to look at Zephaniah this week and then Habakkuk next week. And you think, well, why? Well, I would argue that, for, let me say for myself, I couldn't have told you how all these books connected until I read them. I might not have even found them on first go when I opened my Bible. We now understand where Nahum sits in the, in the history of God. We're going to look at where Zephaniah sits in the history of God and Habakkuk as well. They are what is called the historical unit because they're all speaking at the same time into the same things. Different facets of God, but, uh, but at the same time. So let's get our Bibles open. Let's uh, look at um, Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 and again please do not feel shame in turning to the front of your bible looking at the page number and finding zephaniah because if you haven't been in these books very often it's understandable that you don't know where they are on first grab what we know is that zephaniah 1 1 anchors anchors zephaniah in family and in history the word of the lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. So we can, we can anchor this in history. When did King Josiah reign? Between 640 and 609 BC. That's a historical fact, so we can anchor it in this moment. We know it was written before 612 BC. Why? Because in this book, there's a final warning to the big bad Assyrians. Everyone say boo. Boo. The big bad Assyrians that had been attacking the people of God for generations. There's a final warning before they were destroyed in 612 BC, where they were wiped out. That's chapter 2, verse 13. King Josiah, he was for all accounts a good king he attempted to reform the nation back to god when we look at our leaders we've been crying out for godly leaders haven't we that's been our heart in this nation and in the the nations that are our neighbors godly leaders well here's the thing king josiah attempted to reform the people back to god the people of judah back to god and I want to just revisit last week briefly when we touched on the idea of a top-down system or a bottom-up system in society. So often we say, if we only had a godly leader, it would make all the difference. And I wanted to propose last week, and I propose again this week, that that is not the ideal way to do it. Let me unpack why. Top-down versus bottom-up. 
What we see is Josiah fails. He fails to turn a nation. Why? Why does he fail? Because the people are too far gone. You think, Stuart, how can they ever be too far gone? Is anyone ever too far gone from God's grace? No. Is anyone ever too far gone from transformation potential? No. But what do you need for transformation? You need somebody who'll get alongside you and speak a different way. Somebody who will live alongside you and live a different way. The people were too far gone. They weren't willing to do that. Their hearts were so far turned. They were so entrenched in their own ways. We won't go into this too much because we have been over it week on week. Um, but again, it's just to drill down where the people were. So much so that even a prominent voice of significant influence could not change the trajectory of the nation. Why? Top-down system only works if there are people at the bottom willing to get alongside a brother and minister through a transformed heart to create a transformed heart. One to one. Chapter one, verse 12. Let's look at this. Here is a prophetic word that we get. And at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. This is the word of the Lord coming to the people who have settled in their ways and refused to embrace God. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who settle down comfortably, who say to themselves, the Lord will do nothing, good or bad. A generation had been raised to be ambivalent to God, to say, oh, God's not going to do anything. Do we live in that generation today? I would propose that we do. People are like ambivalent towards the very notion of, of God doing anything. The word almost here is the people saying God doesn't see and God isn't actually bothered about how we live. Verse 13 here is the prophetic word. Their wealth will become plunder and their houses a ruin. They will build houses but never live in them. Plant vineyards but never drink their wine. Why was that word given? Because not only was Assyria going to be destroyed and therefore that threat is removed, but God has promised that somebody else is coming. Babylon, big bad Babylon. Again, who goes to VeggieTales and sees Dave and the giant pickle and all these things, all the different vegetables? For some reason, when I think of Babylon, I'm seeing that. Forgive me. Babylon is coming. God's instrument of judgment is coming on the people. So that, and it's going to be within a generation, pretty much. You're going to build houses, but you won't live in them. Uh, 1 verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Near and rapidly approaching. Listen, the day of the Lord. Then the warrior's cry is bitter. So there's this repeated phrase throughout God's word, the day of the Lord, this picture, this imagery, and it can relate to a local time of judgment, a national judgment, or a worldwide judgment. Absolute. And how do we know it's worldwide that's coming eventually? Chapter 1, verse 2. I will completely sweep away. This is God's word to the people. I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. People and animals, birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. Does God make declarations lightly? 
don't think he does. But lest we forget that we're talking about the perfect combination. You put your pe peanut butter on your toast, but you haven't got the jelly in the house. It's missing. It's not the same. You've been robbed of something. You put the kettle on, but you go to the bread bin, there's no toast in the bread bin, Rose. You've been robbed of your moment. You go to open the cupboard and realize that your children ate the chocolate you were planning on having the next day with your coffee or whatever. Lest we forget that it's a perfect combination of truth, yes, but also love as well. Let's look at this. Chapter 2, verse 3. This is the heart of God speaking. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So listen, folks. The time has passed where the nation can be turned. But as for you, perhaps you can be concealed when it all unravels. What's the condition? Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what he commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed. That's the heart of God. And also, Chapter 2, verse 11, lest we also forget who is behind the disobedience of the people. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 11. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. We've touched on this a few times in our chronology, and I know it's a bit of a kind of makes your brain hurt, this idea that there's a supernatural reality behind what we see. So we, we see tangible, I see Mike and I can shake Mike's hand and he's a tangible thing in front of me, but I know that there's more going on with Mike than what I can see because he's walked with the Lord. So there's a supernatural dynamic working through Mike and others, all of you, if you trust in the Lord. There's more than what we see, but that also means that there's a supernatural dynamic working in the people that are not working, walking with God. They're getting drawn into things that God doesn't want them to get drawn into. They're willingly walking into things that God doesn't want them to walk into, and, and God is going to deal with that. We say, God, when are we going to see justice on the earth? When this is dealt with as well. When the supernatural that is not of God, that is not obedient to God, is dealt with. So, we don't want to forget that. People are walking from God, but there are, there are influences. We looked at the Tower of Babel. We looked at Job. We know that in the garden, let's go back to the very start, the people were dragged away. No, let me rephrase that. They were enticed away. They weren't dragged because they went willingly. But they were enticed away by that supernatural voice that whispers and says, come on, this is better. This will be more fun. You can be who you want to be rather than stepping back and saying, God, who do you want me to be? So there's all that going on. Now, when we look at these chapters, perhaps you think, Stuart, this is a little bit dull, a little bit drab, a bit repetitive, because it's hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, and you might not have a, hist a, a, a love of history. I remember I asked that question a few weeks ago, and 
lots of folk put their hands up, and I was like, I'm really sorry that we are going through history. Here's a question, though. Do you have an interest in current affairs? Do you care about your now? I think everyone would say, yeah, I care about my now. Well, I think when we look at these books, we get a sense of current affairs as well. We get a sense of what's going on. Let's go to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. This is written of Jerusalem during Zephaniah's day. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressed city. She has not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She has not trusted in the Lord. She's not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Their judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. That is what was going on at the time, uh, in, in the time of, of, of Zephaniah, where there was once a visible, unashamed beacon to honor God. No longer, it's gone. The obedience is gone, the trust is gone, the intimacy is gone with leaders and authorities. What does it say? Like lions and wolves. Lions and wolves. Not only that, but the religious leaders of the day were reckless with their words, disregarding God's truth, and they've lost the true meaning of what it is to come to a sanctuary. And so I say, okay, that's history, and I invite you to think, let's do a spiritual checkup of our own nation in our own day. Let's look at the various levels and layers. What about our centers of power? What about our governments? What about our churches? The people who set the tone for the nation. Where is Christ in, in these places? Like, I don't just mean little lights of Christ that are drowned out by the majority noise, but where is Christ in these places? I don't think this nation is lost beyond hope. I don't think our nations are lost beyond hope. But, the top-down system, as we see with King Josiah, isn't always the answer. Just because we maybe feel the top is rotten doesn't mean the rest need to be. And let's go back again to last week. Transformation from the ground up. This is where it gets uh, challenging. It gets interesting. It gets to be personal. From the ground up, it means that Duncan, it means Brendan, it means Sue, Sam, it means Helen, it means no matter who you are and where you are, God is inviting you to embrace this incredibly exciting chapter of life. Transformation from the ground up, one heart at a time. Now it might not change a nation, it couldn't change a nation in Zephaniah's day, but does that mean that we throw in the towel and we give up and we say, well, see how our country is? What can I do about it? I want to encourage you that you can do a lot. We can do a lot. It might not change the nation, but here's what it might change. It might change your household. It might change your family. It might change your street. It might even change pockets of your own town or your own city. We get to set the tone 
and then we watch how people follow. Russell, when you were sharing that picture of people wanting to be carried in to church, they're joking, but I think we have people out there who are longing to come to a place where they can encounter something that is real and true and good and worthwhile and, and uh, what's the phrase, what could I say, undefiled. People want that. Not everybody, but there are people that want that. And maybe we need to carry them in. I'm not suggesting that you bop them over the head and bring them here so they wake up and they're like, how did I get here? That's not what I'm saying. But we need to carry, we maybe need to carry them in. How do we carry them in? We bear their burdens. We love them. We get alongside them. We encourage them. We live a better way in front of them. What's that phrase that we've said a thousand times and it's worth repeating? The best way to make someone hungry is to eat in front of them. Let's live. Let's live the life of Christ amongst them and just watch what happens. What's God's end game as we close our time? What's God's end game in this season of history? Well, let's go back to the original purpose of Israel and of Judah to be a light to the nations. Now we know from our place in history that he needed a nation to be present that was able to raise up the Christ. And so Israel and Judah are not finished with yet. They're going to get taken to captivity but they are going to return. Spoiler alert, if you don't know your history, they are coming back uh, into the land. But what is his purpose? Uh, chapter 3, verses eight, verse 8, the second part of verse 8. My decision is to gather the nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pull, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all my burning anger for the whole earth will be consumed with my fire of jealousy. Let's keep reading though. For I will then restore pure speech to the people so that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with a single purpose. God's end game is yes, purification, but through fire. So he's going to get there but it's going to be uncomfortable. But what's going to come at the end of it? If you get a chance, read chapter 3 in your own time and see God's incredible picture for what he wants. Thank you.